Hey guys, welcome back to the Cow Pricey Guy podcast. Um, it's been a while, you know, but but I feel I feel a lot better now. I got through COVID. Um, my voice is back, which is great because I I'm not used to doing a raspy voice. But um, yeah, things have been better for me, and I I'm, and I'm super honored and super blessed to have um, my guest on today. This this is someone who is an MMA legend. Uh, this is some a business owner, a podcaster. Um, so th- this is someone that you know I'm very honored to speak with today, and I hope you guys are going to be blessed by his presence and blessed by his knowledge and his wisdom. Because if you guys listen to his podcast, which is the Yamato Damashi podcast, he the, he says a lot of wisdom, and it's it's a great it's a great podcast about um, his life and. Uh, his opinions on what's going on today even with mma and we'll talk about that as well but i just want to bring on um our special guest today give a um ladies and gentlemen round of applause for mr ensign Inoue. <laughs> what's up <laughs> hey uncle ensign are you, you do people call you uncle ensign when they come in your shop? Some people do, I guess, yeah. I mean, I guess I'm looking older, so people that I don't know just call me uncle sometimes. <laughs> I think for, um, th- that's something so good about Hawaii because, you know, it, like even even if you're like a year younger, I mean, I, I still call people that are um, with great respect, I call them uncle because, or auntie, just because I think that's just something we grew up with. So, um mm. But yeah, Uncle Ensign, I I have <laughs> we we see your your younger self in the um on the top left corner or your top right corner. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the young dude, man. <laughs> young dude, you're still young at heart, though. I you're still very active. Yeah, very, very much, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, um, first off, um, how is how have things been in Hawaii? Because you've you've uh been here for. Maybe a month now. You you come back and forth. You you live in Japan, but you're you're here in Hawaii to do business. But then now you're um, uh, with, for your your uh, for Destiny Forever, which we'll talk about later. But um, how have things been? Really good. Um, I actually had a usually usually my trips are only like two weeks, mm-hmm. but because of the pandemic and because. Uh, well, the last time I came back in November, when I went back, I had to quarantine for 14 days. So, hmm. you know, when you got to go back and add another 14 days to your trip to be immobile in your house, you know, it's got to be worthwhile a trip. So instead of just doing a two-weeker and then quarantine for as long as I was in Hawaii and Japan, I figured it's probably better to make it a long trip. So now that um, the new whole, the new movement now in Japan is uh, there's no quarantine for vaccinated people. Hmm. Um, I, I, the trips I can, you know, my next one will probably be a two or three weeker because now I can go back and forth a lot easier. Yeah. So that makes a big difference when I don't need to quarantine. So kind of looking forward to it, man. No quarantine this time on the way home. Yeah, definitely. I seen that, um, I don't know if it's an app, but it scans your face. Is that how they, they track, um, whether you're, you're being, you're quarantining or not? Yeah, so when I came, went back in November, they had a you had to put in three apps. One app was a video recorder, mm-hmm. where they uh, call you and you just kind of put your face in this circle in the video, mm-hmm. and they look at you for thirty seconds, no talking, you just just look at the person. 
And another app was one that um, they sent you a health questionnaire that you had to answer every day if you're having any symptoms. Mm, okay. And it's pretty much if you don't have anything, there's no, 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 no done. So that was fast. But then there was also another one that they would, well, a video one, they would also call you randomly. The other one is there is a locator that they put on. You had to put in a location uh, application mm-hmm. that only locates where you are when you push the button for what they say. Yeah? Interesting. Okay. Yes. Well, they would they would send you a message, a text message saying, please press your you, you are here button. Mm. And that would happen once or sometimes twice a day where they ask you to push the button. And obviously you have to be home. Mm-hmm. So that the indicator shows that your uh, your location, your GPS is at home. Mm. So yeah, that's the three things that we had actually. And you know, it was um, I, I guess yeah, it, it pretty much keeps you there because you don't want to miss too many of them. Then they start doubting you, yeah. Yeah. And you know, I I guess for us, we felt privileged that we're able to do our quarantine at home, mm. and we didn't want to be like black marked and then they say, okay, you're never home, and we want to call you still. So, you're going to have to quarantine in a specified location, you know? So we didn't want something like that to happen, which in Japan, as you know, can easily happen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So was very obedient with the quarantine and this time, no quarantine still looking yeah. forward to that. That's good. Starting my life in Japan the day I get back instead of waiting two weeks, two weeks is a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I had COVID uh, waiting for two weeks, being at home, it was, it went by fast, but it was also, um, I don't know, it, it felt longer just because of the, the sickness to, to go through it and um, to get yeah. better. I think the chills was okay because I had chills. Uh, the, the problem was the sore throat. I had this real sore throat where um, it was hard to swallow or even um, to drink water. It was hard to drink water for oh, I hate that. Oh. a couple of days. So it was... Yeah, it would it would burn. So when I drank water, it would burn, and then, um, Ooh. yeah, it sucked. It was it was uh, it was super shitty. So, um, but I so what happened was I got sick. I had chills, and then I didn't have chills, but I had a sore throat for a couple of days where it was it was real scratchy, and then I got chills again, but my sore throat went away. So I'll say I I told I told my wife I said I rather I rather have chills than the sore throat. So I'm I'm okay with this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, uh, the whole time after that was, um, you know, I felt pretty good. You know, it, it, I was just getting better slowly. I lost my voice, which is kind of why um, I had to put my podcast on hold because it was. Uh, you know, it's hard to do a podcast if uh, people can't hear you. So, you know, it, it, yeah, yeah, just, <laughs> that would make it a little difficult. <laughs> yeah. I could do an ASMR. Maybe I'll do an ASMR podcast, just maybe eating fried chicken or something and see if people like that. <laughs> um, yeah, I bet. Would you, I'm glad you got over it without any, like, you know, lingering uh, health complications, which some people have, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, yeah. For me, like um, you know, during COVID right now, I I take it precautionary. I'm not as like over cautionary as some people where they they gotta sanitize everything. You know, I mean, they gotta sanitize every time they come in and go out. But um, I'm to the point where you know I I'm comfortable if I get it or I don't get it. But I don't want to be able to. I don't want to be that person to get it. You know what I mean? Or I don't want to be that person to spread it, even if 
I was asymptomatic or not. So, um, so I'm I'm like cautiously, but I'm not over cautiously handling COVID. Oh, I see. Yeah. So, so it, yeah, it's been it's been good. So, for people that don't know, uh, you did move to Japan. Was it about thirty-one years ago? Was it 30 yeah, years? thirty-one years ago, man! Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, let's talk about Hawaii for a bit, because uh, you, you know I, I don't know if some people know, but you used to play racquetball. Um, this is kind of how you you started with your um, your MMA career. You you actually you did karate at first, and then you went to um, which you didn't like, but. Uh, I kind of want to ask, uh, what, what is one thing you, you miss about Hawaii, you know, versus Japan right now? Well, my, my big thing was the beaches. Mm. I would jump in, like, even today, till today, when I, in the morning, I wake up, I do a little workout. Uh, because my knees are bad now, I kind of walk the beach, no running anymore, and then uh, swim to the reef, you know. So my my whole daily routine in the morning is to get in the water, you know, mm. and course i i can't you know because of my age and my shoulders and all the all the injuries that i have i can't do what i used to do i can't do the surfing i can't do the diving i don't have the equipment anymore but i mean for for something about i guess being an island boy and getting in the water is something that's real huge Mm -hmm. and i get refreshed i feel good when i jump in the water i jumped in the water today going to jump in the water tomorrow every day i pretty much jump in the water Mm -hmm. and you know how it is you know the the mesh shorts that dry fast hang them on the the rear view mirror and, and then the, <laughs> the side mirror on the car dry. My my pants are hanging on my my mirror right now, drying up. So, you know, Hawaii. I love Hawaii. That's the biggest thing I miss about Hawaii is the beaches, man. Mm-hmm. What about the um, the community now? Like, what what changes have you seen um, back in back in your day when you were living here versus versus now? <clears throat> One is real stands out a lot is the homeless people. Mm. We've never had so much homeless back in when I was younger, mm. and the crime, the crime's ridiculous. I mean, it bothers me a lot about considering Hawaii my home, and then there's so much crime, and you know, you know, people that are stealing and robbing and doing, making this a, not a safe place anymore. You know, mm. so it's real frustrating for me. I mean, that's one of the big changes I've seen. And I have a hard time with it when I come home. I see, uh, you know, the chronic people out on the street. You know, you know, they are they want another fix. So they're they're trying to get money any way they want, you know. So it's just, uh, it's a real um, unfortunate thing that I noticed when it was, since I got home. It's really disturbing and kind of sad to see the islands turning like that. Mm-hmm. For Japan, is there a lot more crime that's maybe not said or is it is it kind of um kind of consistent i mean the the culture there is it pretty consistent no it's kind of consistent okay japan does have its crime you know it does have its crime but with the um the reputation it has where it's pretty pretty safe that's pretty accurate Mm. i mean like we always talk about it that you lose your wallet in japan 99 percent of chances you're getting everything back everything in it Mm. You lock, you forget your cell phone on the, on the, in the say in the train station, ninety nine percent chance someone's going to turn it in. You're going to get your phone back. Mm. And I've I'm I've had a hundred percent rate at that. I mean I'm saying ninety nine because there's always going to be someone that 
is not going to return it. Mm-hmm. You know, even even you still see today in Japan, you see people going to Seven Eleven in their cars and leaving their cars running on the in the parking lot. Wow! Oh, they should. Yeah, so that kind of stuff still goes on. And it, it, I don't think it's underplayed or overplayed. I think Japan's a, primarily a very very safe country. Mm. And with the movement of the way the you know Hawaii's going, moving with the way the whole road is going, man. I can't think of a better place to be as far as safety mm. in Japan. You know, if I had my choice and I, you know, I was a millionaire, I'd, I would love to, you know, fly my parents up here and have them, you know, finish off their golden years here in Hawaii, man. This, I mean, here in Japan, I mean, Hawaii's a beautiful place, but I mean, just the crime and, you know, being so far away from them just worries me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. You know, for, um, I always hear stories about Japan being, super safe and people very accommodating uh which is which is amazing you know you see it in videos and then and then actually that's actually how they are you know how how accommodating they are and how how nice and they keep consistent which is which is really good so that's and you know i agree with with hawaii i mean back in when i was going to high school and stuff i mean we didn't see much crime because it was safe to walk to like Zippy's at 2 a.m. in the morning, and I, I lived in Kailua. Um, I'm I'm a windward, windward boy my whole life, literally. But um, I remember I used to, you know, I used to live at Ulupaina Street, which is um, kind of off of Oniawa Street, and um, to get to Zippy's is probably a good 50 minute walk, I think, if you're walking kind of slow, but <laughs> it's a good 50 minute <laughs> walk, and um, and yeah, we used to go at like one o'clock in the morning and we wouldn't have any problems uh, for like, you know, uh, people, you know, drunk drivers. We wouldn't have any problems with um, just any kind of out of weird people or even homeless, you know. So um, so I agree, you know, even now I tell people, hey, you know, it's, it is a lot more dangerous just walking around at night, even going to the club or anything because you don't know what's going to happen here. And um, yeah. I I don't know if that's the influx of tourists that's that's been coming or if it's just um, the the amount of housing that's being bought here, which is it's different because it's there's locals that are leaving versus people from the mainland that are buying more housing here, which could could factor into that. So um, a lot of changes, a lot of changes in Hawaii, but. So let's talk about your days in Hawaii. Let's talk about racquetball, for instance. Actually, I want to know, were, were you and your brother very competitive? Because in a lot of ways, you and your brother did a lot of the same things. You guys did, both did martial arts, um, racquetball. So were you, were you and your brother Egan very competitive? No, no, I don't, I don't feel like we were towards each other. Mm. We're more supportive towards each other. You know, we trained a lot together. I mean, racquetball, Egan uh, helped me out a lot with, you know, the, the way to train, you know, working on my stroke. So, you know, he helped out a lot. Mm. Even, uh, you know, travel. He had all the good sponsors. I didn't have sponsors, so I stayed in his sponsors' rooms, you know. So mm. he, there was, there was no, never a, a, like a competition level where we would not, we would keep things from each other or mm. you, that's your sponsor, not mine. You know, it was everything. I mean, as far as Egan goes, everything was shared and everything was uh, 
you know, he made it accessible to me. So mm. I, I didn't have, you know, he was a much better player. So he had all the sponsors. I didn't have anything that I could really offer him, but he still, as the older brother, helped me out, you know, worked, helped me work my game, helped me train, you know. So I don't think that he, there was any like role of competitiveness in, in us, really. Not really. I don't think so. That's good. I know for um, my dad, my dad was super competitive. I mean, with his brothers, they would, <laughs> he used to get into, um, oh, really? yeah, they used to get into fights all the time. Actually, my, my dad was competitive with me with um, like basketball or chess. So he would always tell me, hey, let's go play, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a competitive person, which is surprising. I'm not, I'm not super um, like, oh, like if he won, I would have been like, oh, that's cool. You know, <laughs> I wouldn't try to like <laughs> go again. Competitive people want to have the other person want to win too, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and my sister was competitive. So I, I grew up, yeah, surprisingly, I grew up in a, a competitive family. So we would, they, they would want to be competitive, but I, I didn't, I didn't feel like I could reach that just because I, I was younger. So I, I, um, but in a way, I guess I, I worked up to try to, try to at least keep up with them. So, um, yeah, that's, that's great though. And, um, one one of the things you guys used to do is uh, karate, which I I used to do karate when I was younger too. So, um, talk about your experience going into karate because you have a very interesting story about you took a class and then you never really looked back at it. You you basically just uh, it wasn't a good fit. Basically, just wimped out pretty much. Hmm. My uh, my grandpa my grandfather was a karate black belt. At the time, my mom was a karate brown belt. I think Egan was also a karate brown belt at the time. Mm. And so, you know, like, my, I think my dad didn't ever do karate, but it was kind of like, oh, mom, dad, grandpa, karate. Uh, I guess I'll try it out, you know. So I did go, and um, I don't know if it was, it was like one of the fir first, one of the first three classes, I think it was. Mm. It was within the third class, I think, where, you know, the, you stand in a stance, and you have to have a good stance and the teacher comes around and of course we're little kids so mm. I, I mean for me it would seem pretty dressed pretty dramatic but i think for the teacher it probably wasn't i remember his name was daryl lee mm -hmm. and he came around and just started you know just checking just swiftly just kicking our legs to see if we have a good stance and if we have a good stance we would be okay we won't fall and for me i think i fell yeah <laughs> he sweeped me right off my feet onto my butt and it was in front of the whole class. I remember just saying, oh, fuck this shit. I'm out of here, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I think I got up. I started, I think I was crying. I got up mm. and I just left the dojo, man. Mm. And I ran out to the dojo. I remember going downstairs and they had, it was in Puck Sally. Mm. And there was a um, construction going on. And I remember the construction workers on the side. There was a payphone I couldn't reach because I was so little. Mm -hmm. I had to ask the workers if they could, uh, you know, put the money in and dial the phone for me so I could call my dad to pick me up. Oh, jeez. Okay. Yeah. And then the worker um, complied. He said, yeah, no problem. He bent down. He he grabbed me some. Uh, I, he, I gave him the loose change. And he called, dialed the phone, had me the phone. And I called and said, told my dad, I didn't take karate. Come get me. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's awesome. The amazing, amazing thing with that is that, I mean, I would think as a proper father for me, so that my my boy doesn't turn to a quitter or like a little you know guy that can cry out of things. Mm-hmm. I would have you know I would have had a little talk with my son and told him you know hey, you got to be tough. You got to tough it out. You know. But you know what's real weird is, I consider myself. I'm really happy the way I grew up, and I'm really happy for the person I am. I didn't turn out to be a you know a real um, weak person inside. I, mm-hmm. I believe I, I'm a, a, a fairly strong person. And I don't know. I mean, the fact that my dad didn't give me any pressure to go back at all. I mean, for me, the proper way would be make your son go back, you know. But I mean, I guess there is also another way that actually could be productive because the way my dad approached it with me, you know, it didn't turn me into someone who gives up a lot. It didn't turn me into a crybaby. Mm. I don't remember if he gave me any side talks on the side, but... Where the way, wherever, however he did it, I really like what he did because I really am proud of who I am today. And I guess sometimes, you know, it made me think about it and hopefully make some other people think about it that maybe the hard love isn't always the best way to do it for kids nowadays. Maybe, Mm. you know, just showing compassion and understanding sometimes is the way to do it. I don't know. I mean, it worked for me. So, you know. Yeah, it's a it's a case by case kind of thing, you know. With, I think so. Yeah, I think it was one of those chances that I, it didn't affect me in that way. It didn't I didn't turn into a you know a, a person that would find ways out of situations by crying or or, or giving up. Yeah, mm. so lucky. <laughs> and who knows? I mean, like that's a good point because like who knows if maybe they they disciplined you hard about. Um, you know, like not giving up with kind of team, you could have been a completely different person, you know, maybe much worse. So, you know, yeah, yeah, that's a good point because I think, um, because that that's kind of goes back to like parents understanding their children, knowing, you know, what their children like and what they do, how they are, because then they'll know what kind of pep talks they need to give or, or not give them you know in in certain moments like that yeah yeah i believe that yeah um that was the same so like so when i took karate uh it was it was funny because um i just remember this one where i was um was i we did sparring and i was up against uh i was i I think i was like second grade and i was up against um one of my friends mariah right a girl and i felt awkward because you know i was like i don't know how to you know at, at the time, I was like, I, I don't know how to restrain myself or, like, I don't want to hit her because, you know, it's a girl. It's a, one of my friends. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, so I just got beat up the whole that whole sparring match. She she actually hit me pretty good in the um, in the stomach, got me down on the ground, and I was I was on the ground for for a while. Um, but, yeah, I kind of, you know, the, with, with uh, Kate and... Um, I, I think I stuck it through until third grade uh, or four. It was fourth grade, actually. I, th- I stuck it through until fourth grade. And then I um, transitioned to like school choir or something, something completely different. <laughs> oh, <laughs> something that suited you better, maybe, huh? Yeah. I, um, but, you know, with, with, uh, with karate, it, it's, I think it's good for parents to, to put, 
kids into you know a martial arts program like that just to get them exposed even if they don't like it but then you know if they decide to move on from it then that's fine too but um you know with hawaii it's it's kind of a interesting thing because um you know i i see a lot of parents they'll just put their kids in karate or taekwondo or um you know maybe wing chun you know already already here and i guess hawaii is kind of a melting pot of not just people but even martial arts as well so what what would you say for that yeah hawaii has a wide range yeah i mean back in the day we weren't that it wasn't that accessible for us mm. and i found a muay thai teacher that was teaching in the park muay park you know so you had to kind of find your teachers, but nowadays, man, there's gyms all over the place. I mean, especially jujitsu gyms, they're, they're all over. Mm. I mean, I drive by a lot of jujitsu. Whoa, another jujitsu, another jujitsu. <laughs> it's kind of cool, man. I don't know who runs them all, but mm. I, uh, it's pretty cool to see, though. Mm-hmm. All the different jujitsu gyms popping up all over. They used to. Um, I remember uh, maybe like I'd, I'd say like ten years ago, they used to have the. Um, the jujitsu uh the garages you know people do their their own gym in the in yeah, the garage so we started that's how we started ours we were starting in the garage man it was a garage garage dojo mm-hmm. just putting mats in the garage yeah so um kind of continuing off with with martial arts because um you had that experience with karate but then uh you you tried a few different things after that you you tried some wing chun you tried um taekwondo I think Aikido was one. I'm not sure if Aikido was one. But, Aikido was also one. Um, but you found jujitsu in some way. How did how did that transition happen? Um, I was uh, I actually retired from racquetball. Mm. So I was going back to the UH, and I, I guess I needed somewhere to channel my energy. <clears throat> so I looked at all different classes they had and. I saw, I found, that's where I found Aikido actually. Mm. And then, so I, I took that Aikido class and for me, I, I was not looking at the spiritual side of the martial art. I was looking more for something that I could apply on the streets to defend myself or to fight. Mm. And Aikido is all, not the one you want to do if you want to learn something <laughs> that you can take off the street in a month or two, you know? So mm-hmm. when I found that out, I decided to move on from Aikido. And that's where I was walking down the um, campus center one day in the UH, University of Manoa. And I walked by this Brazilian guy, set up a little table with a video of street fights playing. Mm. When I saw it, I was like, oh, what is this? Stood there and watched it. And I was like, holy crap. These jujitsu guys are beating everybody up. And I was saying, wow, this is exactly what I want to learn. Mm. And lo and behold, the... Um, the Jiu-Jitsu, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu was actually a non, uh, non-credit non course in the UH. Mm-hmm. So I decided to go sign up for it, and I signed up for the class, and that's how Jiu-Jitsu actually, I got into Jiu-Jitsu actually, mm-hmm. just from UH. It was a UH non-credit course. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And um, so what was your experience like that with uh, maybe your first experience going to class because... Um, you know, with the other classes, they didn't really click. But then, was it the 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 self defense part of it? Like how 
with jujitsu, it's like um, you have all these different traps. Did that was that that interested you, or was it? Something well, what happened was when I walked in, when I walked in the class, they had this uh, the Gracies had this prerequisite where they would run everyone through a 30, 30 day um, self defense class before even getting into the ground aspect of jujitsu. Mm-hmm. When I went into the first class, you know, I was expecting to see stuff I saw in the video where guys are, you know, beating other guys up and, you know, <laughs> learning how to defend yourself on the streets from, uh, you know, real, real street attacks. Mm. And when we went into the class, we had this, um, it was all basic self-defense. Like he grabs you here, you swing your arm over, do this and do, you know, it was like, this is nothing like I saw in the video. So I was actually kind of disappointed. Hmm. in my first class and as i walked out you know as the class ended i walked out to the teacher helson and i told him hey uh i what i saw in the video i want to try the grappling on the video with somebody and there was a bunch of little black belt guys from brazil that was there mm-hmm. so he kind of said okay and he called this guy um his name was homero Mm. And he said, Homero, come here. And the guy was about, I was about, at the time, I was about 180 pounds. Mm. And this guy was like 130. Mm. And I was thinking, oh, shit. I said, wow, you know, they might have good, better technique than me, but with my strength and my size, this little guy's not going to, I really felt that there's no way he was going to do anything to me. Mm-hmm. And I got, I got choked out, man. I got <laughs> controlled on the ground. I got choked out. And I was like, okay, one more time. Mm. After the third time, I was like, holy shit, this is pretty badass, man. Mm-hmm. And that's when I went head, you know, head over heels every day, just jujitsu. Everything was jujitsu. I was, I was obsessed. I was obsessed with jujitsu. Mm. It was just that one lesson that, that was that one experience that really got yep. to you. Mm. Yeah. That really caught me off guard. Like, whoa. And I, I you know, I really thought that at the time, I really thought that I was a street, good street fighter. I could fight. And I, I learned in that one day that I really knew shit about fighting on the street. Mm. It was a big wake up call for me. Mm. Was that a frequent thing? Cause you, you talk about street fighting as in it, maybe it was something that was, was a big part in Hawaii that happened to you. Yeah, I mean, back in the day, especially being Japanese, being a smaller Japanese guy, they, you know, the Hawaiians want to take your lunch money. Mm. I've had big incidents in Stevenson Intermediate School. Mm. When we, when the, you know, as as we merge from Manoa to the Intermediate School, it's, uh, you know, you go to Intermediate School as uh, Stevenson and then go to Roosevelt in my district. Mm. So you're mixing in with Poa and Papakalea, you know, all the guys in there. So you got this small little, you know, American Japanese community merging with the, you know, the Samoans and the Hawaiians, you know, mm-hmm. and then you got, you know, back in that day, uh, a bigger guy was a stronger guy. So the bigger guys would come in, you know, take lunch money from the Japanese kids, you know, so, you know, you, you either give up your lunch money every day or you fight back and they never bother you again, but they're always going to start and pick on you and start little fights here and there. So, mm. yeah, I'm, it was a lot of, it was a uphill battle. And once I, you know, stood up for myself, you know, it, it it's not like it stopped. There's these people. I remember Billy Keka, um, Avis, mm. and had this little boy, Puna. I mean, those three people just terrorized me every day, you know. And, you know, it, it wasn't to a point where 
I was traumatized or I didn't want to go to school. I just freaking hated them. Mm -hmm. I mean, they would, every time they had a chance, they would stare me down, you know, I mean, and they were older than us. So, you know, they're, they're a lot, you know, we felt they're bigger and stronger, you know, but I mean, I rather, you know, stand up for myself and be, you know, living under the edge in school than, you know, you know, like they say, what well, I'd rather, you know, die on my feet than live on my knees, you know? So, mm -hmm. yes, yeah, it's kind of like that where I had to make a choice and the choice was to stand up. Mm -hmm. And once I did, you know, it couldn't turn around. You know, I had to stand up for myself every time. And it did cause a lot of pressure and a lot of, you know, a lot of anxiety going to school, but it was okay. I mean, look, I turned out okay. So mm -hmm. all in all, it was actually a very good experience, I believe. And I think that that's a testament to um, your will as a fighter as well, being able to just stand up and um, go against that oppression versus, you know, um, taking it on the shins. You know, you, you just you, you stand up for yourself. And I think that's important. Same thing with like junior high. I think even for me, junior high, I got into a few fights, too. So um, I, I don't know if it's just because there's so many people that are coming to one place that um, you, you get that kind of thing at junior high. But, you know, I think a lot of my friends would say the same thing. It's just something about uh, I, I went to Kailua Intermediate. So, um, yeah, same thing would be I wouldn't have the same kind of issues where I had someone staring me down every day. But, yeah, yeah, you know, um there was there was when there was one instance i remember um there was a guy that was throwing food at me i was i was eating lunch and he was he was uh throwing food at me i, I didn't really retaliate until um they you know started throwing like milk and stuff like that and then i got then i got pissed off and um i didn't know any martial arts at the time but i i got him i got him to the ground and you know honestly <laughs> it, it it's good i it's good that i didn't know jujitsu because i probably maybe could have done even more damage or something at that point but you know because i i had top position and you know i i was at the i had the mountain position at the time so it was like you know it's 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 good you know that i didn't know jujitsu and stuff at that point but um but yeah i totally understand that it's it's more of a self-defense thing being able yeah, to yeah. um and and then the art of it too I, I think the what really interests me about jujitsu is how you can kind of do this whole chess thing with people, you know, especially if um, both both people are, are great practitioners in jujitsu. I, I actually practice um, Kali Eskrima on the side. I've been, I've been practicing with my um, uh, Sifu, Sifu Nate. Shout out to Sifu Nate, who's Nathan Young, who's been um, teaching me. But... Um, yeah, we we've been we've been really practicing stuff with with locks and disarms with Kali Eskrima. So um it really interests me the the intricacies of like, you know, just you you take one step here and you have all these different options or you you grab someone's wrist and you can do so many different options with um disarms and with jiu-jitsu it's probably the same way. So that's that really um I kind of like this chess game, yeah. Yeah. It's a good yeah. game. <laughs> yeah, it is real good. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about um, your transition from 
uh, jujitsu, you're going to your first class. Actually, um, actually, I want to talk about your experience on getting a black belt or or reaching that pinnacle, getting a black belt, and you actually have an interesting story about how you um, you step back from it too. You wanted to go back to being a, a purple belt because of how things have changed. But um, how did that experience come about with you became a black belt? Well, it was real. Um, I think uh, the way I trained um, in uh, Japan, I mean, in Hawaii, the, I trained so much that I got my, uh, I, my, my level increased really fast where when, while I was a blue belt, I was actually uh, submitting black belts oh. from Brazil. Mm. Yeah, so I was a, I went I shot to the level, but in the midst of being a purple belt, I moved to Japan. Mm. So I trained. I kept training in Japan. Of course, didn't have any jujitsu guys in Japan, so I had to pretty mm. much train with wrestlers, grab wrestlers, grab those kind of guys. Um, so I had to, you know, kind of find a way to actually be able to do that with keep my levels up without, you know, having a jujitsu class. Mm. So, you know, I mean, I, I would want to say that I'm one of the longest uh, Purple Bills ever because I, it was like four years before I even moved on to anything else. Oh, and, wow. You know, it's funny because there was no jiu-jitsu tournaments in Japan, so I couldn't enter any tournaments. Mm. Um, every time I went home, I continued training. And, you know, there was one time where um, Egan won the Worlds in Purple and the and uh, Higgin Machado. We're so happened to, I went on a training trip with Egan. We trained there. We did sparring. And Egan, uh, because Egan won the Worlds in his, uh, in purple, told Egan, hey, you, you should put on a brown. You know, back in the day, it was mm-hmm. like that. You know, the coach would just throw us a belt and say, you're a brown belt now. You know, it wasn't, like right now, there's like a big belt ceremony. You know, they get announced, they clap, you know. But back in the day, it was pretty much, Egan said, oh, Egan, you should be brown. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and said, you're the same level as Egan. You should put on a brown too. Mm. And I go, okay, and I got my brown belt. <laughs> my black belt was real um, non-ceremonial. The black belt, uh, I, I just finished beating Randy Couture. Wow, okay. And then I got called to uh, from three different places that they wanted to uh, present me with my black belt. And I, I chose uh, John Penaderas through um, John Lewis. Mm. Andre Penaderas, yeah. So Andre Penaderas was ahead. John Lewis was under him. And John Lewis is the one who gave me my black belt through Andre Penaderas from Novi Union. Yeah. So it was real um, anticlimactic. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't a big ceremony, a big surprise. It was pretty much, oh, yeah, you beat Randy. We want to give you your black belt. Like, whoa, okay. Is that how it is? <laughs> so I got my black belt in you know. Mm. So I, I got my black belt, you know, almost... Uh, half a decade before you know the IBJJF was formed and it's an association that won't recognize my black belt now mm. you know it's like maybe I should be the one recognizing their association because <laughs> I had my black belt before the association was you know even around even you know around. so mm-hmm. it's like a real weird thing yeah so mm. you know yeah so that that getting my black belt was very anticlimactic and it wasn't like a big thing to really like talk about or brag about at all mm-hmm but that must have been a good feeling, though. I mean, because you put in so much work. And I mean, of course, you trained really hard still, even after getting your black belt. But just to see that accomplishment, you're probably like, man, this is this is crazy. You know, like I've I've actually got to this point, you know, 
but um so i want to talk about because you you there was a phase where you you wanted to go back to being a purple belt because of the fact that um you thought that you didn't practice as a jiu-jitsu artist as a as a black belt jiu-jitsu artist for a while and you thought that because of um jiu-jitsu being kind of forward in time that you're you're i guess not saying you could correct me if i'm wrong but your skill is at that current level you were a purple belt you felt that you were a purple belt at that time so talk about that experience and like um you know why you did that and and uh the reasons for well i actually after i retired i actually was was um wasn't that active for a while so even when I was fighting, I went more towards MMA than Jiu-Jitsu. I did still spar in the gi, but not like I should. Mm-hmm. And you know, the 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 Jiu-Jitsu is is a ever um, if a sport that is never stagnant. It'll always improve and change. Mm-hmm. So the so the ten years that I was actually pretty much off the mats, the sport did a real big change. Mm. So when I went back to sparring again, I realized there's a lot of things my purple belts were doing that I couldn't understand. Mm. And I had this theory on, uh, you know, like if you're like a, a cell phone expert and you know everything about the, you know, those old flip school phones, mm-hmm. know how to use all that. And then you leave the business for 10 years. And when you come back, all of a sudden there's these uh, big, there's iPhones, you know, like, you can go on the internet with them. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm a f- expert in the flip phones, but what the hell is this, you know? So I kind mm-hmm. of I kind of looked at it in that sense that I felt like I couldn't be a, consider myself a jiu-jitsu black belt anymore because I didn't, you know, I had to re- relearn everything. Mm-hmm. And I, I just felt it was like a personal journey for myself that, you know, I wanted to, put myself back, demote myself to the level I think I am in the current jiu-jitsu and, you know, learn it back mm-hmm. and go on another journey and getting the black belt, you know, but, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was taken good and bad from many people, you know, mm. a lot of people praised me for it, called it, called it, you know, great humility. Some people considered it a, some some other people are saying that I'm trying to grab attention, which was one of my wasn't even in, in my head. You know, mm. I wanted to get attention from people. You know, and then some are really pissed off. Mm. And what I noticed, the ones that were really pissed off were the ones that uh, are the old school guys that don't train anymore. Mm. And almost, I think they personally felt like I was actually challenging them that you guys should get on the master. So you guys can't be a real black belt. I, and I wasn't. I was, it was just a personal journey and my personal feelings. Mm. You know, so I noticed the people that really got offended were those people. Mm. And, you know, I got praised a lot. And, you know, I, I didn't see it as any type of humility at all. I just thought that it was something of my journey that I wanted to, you know, step back a little bit, start all over and, you know, do what I feel is probably the proper way to respect, give respect to the sport. Mm. What was really interesting was when I um, when I touched bases with John Lewis on it. Mm-hmm. When he told me, he told me, you know, Ensign, you can do whatever you want, but I don't agree with what you're doing. And I was like, wow, what do you mean you don't agree? Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, Ensign, 
a jiu-jitsu black belt isn't like a cell phone expert. He said, I look at it more like a doctorate. As if a doctor is a, you know, doctor in medicine, he steps away from medicine for about, a, you know, 10 years. And he has to come, he wants to come back and start practicing medicine again. He doesn't start at his bachelor degree and get into med school and then, you know, apply for that and go through med school. He doesn't mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. He learns the new techniques and the new technology as a doctor. So he, what he told, what John put, when he pointed this out, which really made sense, he said, you know, the problem is, Ensign, is your lack of humility as a black belt. Mm. And I, it caught me off guard because most of the people were praising me for being so humble. And then when John said that, I thought to myself, wow, I did feel uncomfortable as a black belt with my purple belts passing my guard. Super easy. Mm. And I felt that, yeah, you know, it is. I got to learn everything, suck up my ego, and learn everything as a black belt with a black belt around my waist. Mm. And when John pointed it out and I sat down and, you know, didn't get offended at it, I kind of sat down because John is a very knowledgeable person. So I sat back and said, wait a minute, what does he mean by that? And when I really gave it a deep thought, I realized that he was 100% true. I wanted to demote myself because I was not confident as a black belt. And I felt embarrassed having my purple belts pass my guard. And if I put on a purple belt, I didn't care because we're on the same level now and you passed my guard. Oh, good job. You did a good job, you know, but mm -hmm. I guess it was just that um, little pressure of having a black belt that I didn't have enough humility to be able to, you know, work through it. Mm -hmm. So I, right there, I decided that, you know, Hey, John's right. I'm going to have to keep this black belt on my waist and have to learn humility as a black belt and learn the new techniques as a black belt, even if they have my purple belt to teach me. Mm. So, you know, it was a good learning experience for me. It was, uh, you know, very humbling experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can, I can see what he, he means by that because for like, um, so I, I'm going to, I'm actually in accounting, but for people that get their, um, their CPA license, uh, they always have to take classes to kind of, uh, keep up that status but then maybe if they decide uh, they're not going to take those classes then um they're not a certified public accountant but they can get their cpa license after they take a few classes to kind of get up to speed with how mm -hmm. um how it is again so it's kind of the same way with um that same terminology you know because you wouldn't you wouldn't go back and tell the um the cpa license crew like oh i have to um, I, I I don't know any, I don't know anything anymore. So here's my license. You can take it back. I'll, I'll take the test again. They'll they'll probably say like, no, you took the test. You passed it. Just take a few classes to get up to speed. Then you're you're certified again. You know. And yeah, 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 yeah. And it's the same. That's the same. Yeah. Um, same thought process. Yeah. Yeah. So I I totally understand what John Lewis was saying right there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess that's that's good for for those who are going into jujitsu too. And I mean, every martial art there's there's it's it's growing, it's ever evolving. Jujitsu or even um, Wing Chun. I would love to learn to Wing Chun, honestly. Uh, yeah, because... Wing Chun's good. I believe Wing Chun's really good. Mm -hmm. I just um, I just like that. Uh, I like to mix it up. So like, there my um. My teacher, Sifu Nate, he actually mixes um, Wing Chun with boxing. 
So I like the way he um, integrates that because a lot of Wing Chun is very, um, uh, what should I call it? It's, it's a very like you grab and then you attack kind of thing. Very a lot of parries, but with boxing, which I've been which I've been practicing a lot of, is more a lot of footwork. So um, I'll ask him about that later. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Sifu Nate. <laughs> I think it's good to, to do both because they're both in different ranges of fighting. Mm. Boxing is, you know, kickboxing, of course, is you have to be ready at the range of the feet. Mm -hmm. The boxing, you don't need to worry about the range of the feet. It's more the range of the hands. Mm -hmm. And then Wing Chun is pretty much once you make contact. Mm. Once you get contact and there's touching and grabbing involved, mm -hmm. boxing is really hard to, you know, work with. Mm -hmm. And I believe we, right in the middle of um, boxing and wrestling would be Wing Chun. Mm. I, yeah, I believe I believe Wing Chun was one of the arts that I decided that I wanted to work on mm. when I was trying to find the best art for the streets. Mm. Very good point <laughs> for people that are yeah. going to Wing Chun, I guess. <laughs> um, Wing Chun, definitely. So uh, I want to talk about your MMA career. So, like, how how did you want it or? What was your thought process about getting into your first fight, professional fight? Because, um, I mean, how did that even come about for yourself? I was in Japan. Mm. And like I said, I always trained for the streets. Mm -hmm. All my training was about being able to defend myself in the streets. Mm -hmm. And so when I um, learned a lot of fighting, I, when I was in Japan, I noticed that in Japan there was a lot of fights. You know, in Hawaii, there was like Dennis Alexio fighting and Mm -hmm. Rarely did you even have a, a fight in, in uh, Hawaii. Mm. And to even think of, uh, you know, there was no MMA. And I wasn't a kickboxer. So it's like for me to go into a boxing or kickboxing ring was almost unrealistic. Mm. But when I was in Japan, you know, because I knew a lot of the ground, I noticed there was this art called Pancreas. There was an art called Shuto. So a bunch of them that I felt that I could actually use my ground technique in it. So I could actually, you know, feel secure that I would be able to defend myself or even win in this aspect of martial arts. Mm. And so I remember um, my big thing in sports was uh, controlling my anxiety. And, the, you know, I noticed that whenever I played racquetball, I could never be practiced in the, in the tournament court mm. because of the nerves and the jitters and, you know, not being able to control my emotions. So I always thought, like, I, if only I could hit the shots like I do in practice. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's everyone's dream. Yeah? You go to the batting cage, you can hit the balls, solid line drives. And when you get into the game, you can't hit the ball, you're popping it up, you know. So, mm. you know, for me, it was about on this big mission about controlling my nerves, my, my emotions. And I felt racquetball. I never got to the level that Egan was at, but I got to a level where I felt almost close to the practice incident was the tournament incident. So I kind of felt like I was able to control my nerves and emotions to a certain degree that was enough to be able to, you know, be the person that I actually know, not, not be in there in the court and say, whose feet are these, whose racket is this? I don't I feel you know? Mm -hmm. So that was my big thing. I remember, what made me even go on this bigger mission to control my emotions is I, I saw a TV show that a 
a family was driving down the street. They got into an accident. The car turned over, caught on fire. Mm. And because the, the father of the family was panicking so much, he wasn't able to open the door in the car because it was upside down. You know, he was panicking, just pulling on the door, you know. Mm-hmm. And if he had were able to control his emotions, he probably could, you know, figure out the situation so he could open the car door in a more productive way that could get his family out alive. And he didn't, he couldn't do it. And the family passed. And when I saw it, I was saying, man, that's the last thing I would want to do is have, have, you know, my emotions get in the way of me being able to function normally and help people in situations that I would need to be, you know, mm-hmm. level-headed. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I remember I was good friends with the Gracies. So when Hicks and Gracie fought in Japan, I know we, we went to watch him. And I remember when, you know, when he was fighting and he beat this guy, David Luvecki, a huge guy, like twice his size. When he beat him, I remember losing control of my emotions and jumping on the seat, you know, screaming and, you know, saying, yeah, it's, you know, and I felt that, wow. Can you imagine watching someone fight creates so much anxiety and emotions? Can you imagine the, the magnification of the anxiety would be if it was actually me in the ring? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what I thought. I go in on this whole big mission of trying to get into the ring. You know, whether it's a pro ring, amateur ring, it didn't matter. Man-to-man combat, having a man stand across you in the ring that was going to try to hurt you. Mm. That's so much anxiety. And I felt that in order to grow as a competitor and to grow as a man, I had to feel that. I had to feel that anxiety. Whether I was able to control it on one shot or not, I just felt that to have that experience would make me a stronger man and a stronger person. Mm. So that's when I had that whole quest on um, being able to finding a ring to get into, finding a ring to get into that I could, you know, use my skills that I learned in Hawaii. And I, I went I went shopping around to all different martial arts and, you know, pancreas and rings. They had this, uh, you had to wait till they had a test for the new boys. Mm. So I said, okay, I sent in my resume, waited for their call. And as I was waiting, I called Shuto. And Shuto was, uh, unfortunately for me, they were super unorganized. <laughs> and they didn't have a um, a day for a test. Mm. They were pretty much like, "Oh, come down." I was like, "Oh, oh, cool, right on, come down, yeah." yeah. <laughs> so that's what happened, and you know, it was it was funny because I decided to fight only because I wanted to test myself in the ring, mm. and 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 test my anxiety and controlling my emotions, and. That's how it started. That's how I got in the ring. The reason why I'm fighting still today is because up until the fourth fight, I was always like, okay, I'm done. And then the teacher <laughs> would say, Benson, one more, please, one more. And I'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> and it happened for four, four fights in a row. And when I won the first, the fourth fight was against a K1 fighter. <laughs> and when I beat him, I kind of sat back and said, hey, wait a minute. Um, maybe I am pretty good. Maybe mm. I want to see what I can do in this sport. And that's when the whole um, the vision changed. The whole vision changed from trying it out to seeing what I can do in the world on this sport. Because I felt like, wow, I, I think I'm pretty good, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And and you took on some, some pretty hard fights. I mean, I was just watching um, one of your fights the other day with uh, Noguera. 
in, in Pride. I, I mean, I was like, wow, this guy's taking on some crazy fight. Couture, Frank Shamrock. Um, what's the reason for that? Was it just to to was it because you were trying to, you know, challenge your yourself and even try to negate some of that that nervousness, that fear? Um, yeah, well, my whole objective to get in the ring wasn't to win belts, wasn't to make money, wasn't to get sponsors. Mm. I mean, it was fortunate for me back in that day to do that those weren't available. Mm. You couldn't make money. You couldn't get sponsors. You couldn't get famous. You couldn't, you know, so it didn't sidetrack me from my mission of um, controlling my anxiety and my emotions and testing myself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, nowadays you hear all the fighters say that, oh, yeah, I want to fight him. I can beat him in the second round. I can beat him in the first round. Or <laughs> his, he's not even on my level. You know, for me, back in my day, it was like, oh, I don't want to fight that guy. He, I don't think he'll give me a fight. Mm-hmm. It would never be, I would want to fight that guy because I can beat the guy. Mm-hmm. It was more like, oh, my God, I think this guy might destroy me. I want to feel that. I got to see what he can do, see what I can do. Mm-hmm. You know, every time I picked a fight, it was a fighter that I thought that was going to beat me, was going to break me. Mm-hmm. I never picked a fight that I thought I was going to win. So, you know, that's why you notice opponents that I had. I was lucky, too, because back in the day, there was no weight classes. Mm-hmm. So I was outweighed by 60, 70 pounds sometimes of, you know, guys with full muscle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was like, ah, I, um, I, I, enjoyed it i really enjoyed it i mean it was a time of my life i i I could test myself so every fight i took it was somebody that i thought would break me Mm -hmm. what do you think about um mma today because i you know i look back at those fights and you know we had nogera we had you we had couture but we had some ironclad guys and you know i look at mma today with you know press conferences and it feels like people have to try to stir something up in order for people to get buzzing but when i look at those days back in pride you it was just the stare downs and it was there was there was respect but there was also um very intimidating you guys were very intimidating back then as well so um but and then people cling to that you know so what was it about being back then with um, guys like that, having that kind of presence versus the MMA world now with guys trying to figure out, you know, they, maybe they have to try to make some kind of character or persona to to get a buzz, you know, with the crowd? Well, you figure, yeah, nowadays the, the whole thing is different. You know, the whole sport is different. Mm. So it's not about um, testing yourself. It's not about the martial art, the... The martial art that I started in, NHB, No Holds Barred, has turned into a sport. And what I find very unfortunate is it's taking another step over and it's turning itself into entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, sport, understand, yeah, it's there's, they, they added a lot of rules. They added weight classes. You know, it's about, you know, getting sponsors, making your living, you know. Mm-hmm. And then now it's gotten to like almost like the pro wrestling vibe mm. <laughs> is where there's shit talk to create attention, you know, and it, it becomes uh, not as uh, um, authentic anymore because mm. you got guys cussing at each other, saying they hate each other. And then after the fight, they're hugging and making up, you know, it's like 
<laughs> oh, so that was all an act, you know. Almost, mm -hmm. I almost feel like they're fooling the fans, you know. Mm -hmm. And you know, I don't know. Maybe it's a good thing because look how big the sport has gotten. Mm. I, I personally have a little sadness in my heart that um, the sport has moved away from martial arts and it's more into, into entertainment now. Mm -hmm. I, I have a, I have a real hypocritical feeling because I'm super happy about how big the sport has become. Mm. But I'm super bummed that there's so many rules and there's uh, so much uh, entertainment involved in it. So, you know, I wrote a hypocritical stance, but I, I believe it's good and bad. And I, I'm happy about some of the aspects of martial arts today. And I'm disappointed in a lot of it, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Because, you know, with that whole pro wrestling vibe, I mean, it, it's like I was saying before, it's it's guys that are trying to make characters and trying to promote themselves in a way where it's, they stand yeah. out with so many fighters these days, but man, I I just remember guys like Vanderlei Silva where they were just intimidating and they didn't have to shit talk or anything, but they were just you just saw them and you just saw their presence and it was like, man, this is fucking crazy. These yeah. guys are these guys are killers, man. That, I was yeah. my my friends and I would watch guys like um uh I I mean even with Brock Lesnar, I mean. Brock Lesnar, which was which was interesting, where he came from uh, WWF WWE and he transitioned to um, MMA, but even himself, he was a very intimidating force. He wasn't someone. I mean, he did shit talk, but it wasn't like the level we see today, where you know people get a little personal with um, families and and religion and stuff. Which I'm not I'm not accustomed to. You know, I don't really like that much, but you know they still had guys that were just this intimidating and bigger than life guys, but they, you know, there was some, there was respect. You could tell there was respect there. And yeah. Um, so we're missing. Yeah. Now these the respect aspect of it. I agree. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's a fine line, I think. And, um, that's why, you know, I, I like, I like fighters like, um, Adesanya, uh, you know, all these days, Adesanya or um, Stipe Miocic, you know, guys that are just there to fight, you know, and they, they put it on on the line. Um, you know, I don't know about John Jones. John Jones is a different character all in itself. But, um, but you know, honestly, for for John Jones, even back in the day, that guy was a killer as well. He was cleaning out the, the division and... Um, I think he still will be when he comes back. <laughs> yeah. He's just a real special fighter, man. Mm. You think he's going to go funny back? Because, it's funny because, uh, you know, like, I respect all the, you know, Michael Chandler, Justin Gaethje, you know, mm -hmm. um, guys that don't talk shit. Mm -hmm. But as much as I, I, I do respect that, it does, as a fan, it does make it exciting when Connor's talking shit and Kobe Covington's <laughs> flying his mouth off. You know, it kind of does make you like, oh, I want to see that fight now, you know? <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, I can see where it's coming from, where, where there's a little bit of a, you know, a, a middle point where people love it, but not really, but we love it, but not really. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. I'm just like that. You know, I, I disappointed at the they're losing the martial arts aspect of it, but I'm super stoked and excited when I see controversy and, you know, guys screaming, you know, like they're talking to you. I, I watched the, I wanted to watch the Kobe master ball fight be, just because of that. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That rivalry they had. <laughs> yeah, and Jorge got um he got he got uh messed up for twenty five minutes, man. <laughs> he got controlled, man. He got controlled for twenty five yeah. minutes, man. Kobe is just a too his wrestling just was too good for him. Mm-hmm. That guy has un un I don't think people give him a lot of credit for this, but that guy has unbelievable conditioning. I mean, yeah, in, in the ring to, to put in that pace for 25 minutes, honestly, if, if the match was 10 rounds, he probably could do 50 minutes of that. Honestly, with that, with yeah, that type probably. of control. Yep. Um, I agree with that. I and with, like that. with Jorge, uh, you know, remembering that fight, actually, I think if he, his conditioning was better, he probably could have finished the fight. Maybe, Maybe the third round, maybe. I think I don't. I don't know. There was a point I remember he, he had he had a chance, but if he was more conditioned, you know, then he could have he could have finished it. Yeah, he got tired in the end. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, man. His just the way Kobe dominated the wrestling, man. I just I really I would second guess on if even if he had stamina, if he would have been able to keep up with Kobe because Kobe's mm-hmm. wrestling was just way too good man he couldn't do anything on the ground with him mm-hmm. whether tired or not when you're controlling the ground and then you're you get laid on your back and kobe's on you yeah <laughs> whether you're sure or not you're going to be on your back mm-hmm. you can't get out of that without knowing you're having enough wrestling to get out of it mm-hmm. i was guys like um daniel cormier cormier was like that he would smother guys with his wrestling and you know submit them I still remember that one fight where he, it was Uzdemir Cormier and he um, he got him in the crucifix and uh, and he finished the fight that way and I was like wow that was that was crazy because I thought Volkan Uzdemir was you know this killer with some really good striking and I thought he could probably put more pace with the fight but Cormier just took the wrestling and took you know took him down and and finished it up so. His wrestling pretty much took over. Yeah, wrestling, the, the people don't understand it. Wrestling is so important to MMA because it's the middle ground. Mm. You, you you can decide with good wrestling. You can decide whether it stays standing or if it goes to the ground. If you're uncomfortable standing, you take it down. If you if you feel good standing and you feel like he has a better ground game, you keep it on the feet. You know, so wrestling, you're, with good wrestling, you're able to control that point, mm-hmm. which is super huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Wrestling is a is a huge part, and then actually that's a good point because guys like Chandler and Gaethje, who are people know them for their striking, they they actually are very good in wrestling as well, and they use it to defend yeah, themselves top, from the top class wrestlers. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and guys like Chuck Liddell, Chuck, people forget Liddell was also a wrestler as well, but he yeah, uses it to defend the takedown. You know, he's yeah, they're all good. A lot of the top guys, Mark Coleman. A lot of good guys are good wrestlers. Wrestlers are a good catalyst to have for MMA, hundred percent. Mm. So I want to um, transition a little bit to uh, your post career because you you actually are a trainer now. You're 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 coaching somebody as well. You're coaching um, Siyoshi Sudario, and I want to talk about um, how you guys met, how you guys uh, got connected. So. Um, how did that come about? Yeah. Um, I got a call from Saleh Vatisanoi, mm. Konishki. Mm-hmm. And he called me and said, Hey, Ensign, there's this young sumo boy that 
is retiring or is getting kicked out of the sumo stable and would you mind uh working with him and you know Sale has uh helped me out a lot in japan um always been there when i need him so when he asked me that it was a no-brainer yeah of course i'll train him when does he fight and he told me he told me he fights in about a month i'm like whoa he's gonna fight in a month <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't recommend him fighting. I don't think he'll be ready in a month. He said, well, yeah, he wants to fight in a month. So how about, can you take a look at him? So had him come over to the house. Big boy, mm. big sumo guy, lost 100 pounds to fight. Real serious about it. Real athletic, so he picks stuff up really fast. Mm. So when, when, I train, when I first trained him, I said, wow, this guy picks up really fast. But I still think a month is too early for him to fight. Mm-hmm. He insisted he wanted to fight in a month. So I just told him, well, well, if that's the case, we're going to have to do this day and night, you know? Mm. So what happened was he ended up, um, he used to live in Yokohama, which is a little further away from me, which I'm in Saitama. Mm. So what he did was he moved. He moved into my room. He moved in. You know, oh. I had an empty room in the house. He moved in for that month. So we could train the day and night. And um, he did really well. He won. And after the fight, he he asked me if I could continue to be his coach, which I didn't expect and I didn't plan to do because coaching someone takes a lot of time and a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he wanted me to coach him. So I was like, okay, let's do it. And that's how it pretty much came about is he didn't want to train anywhere else after that. Mm-hmm. So as a as a trainer now as a coach now, how's your experience from your MMA career how, bringing it into your coaching career now? What, what's the differences that you've seen, and maybe lessons you've learned? Well, I think the a lot of the you know the sport has changed. So of course you know you have to adjust to the, the day and age now. Be back in the day when we used to train, it was about just pushing through the pain grinding it out, you know, you, you hurt the next day, don't rest, mm. keep pushing yourself, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, I'm, I'm learning that that's not usually the best way to do things. Mm. Um, yeah, the sport has made a lot of changes, you know, and it's more sporty. So my, my mental aspect in the fight, I don't feel like I can actually train a fighter in that sense because it's a different day and age. So I, there's a lot of adjustments. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things that I need to learn too about the sport that has changed. But yeah, it's all in all, it's a real good experience so far, and uh, having a good time. Mm-hmm. How is it training someone who who's uh, maybe their mentality is a little different? Because, um, like I was saying uh, a little previously about how you were. Someone that kind of picked hard fights and, and someone who really challenged themselves in the ring. But then Siyoshi might not be that same person where he, he feels kind of the, like, oh, let's fight to the death kind of person, you know. How, how was oh, that? He's not. he's not. Yeah, you, you, that's a good point you put up because he definitely is one that picks fights that he thinks he can win. Mm. Whenever he sees a fight and he thinks he can beat the guys, I want to fight that guy, you know. So mm. I, it's, it's, a, it's an adjustment for me. The, the 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 mind the mind frame you know the way you're thinking the mindset is a little different mm. and it's not good or bad but uh i do have to acknowledge that there is a different mindset mm. 
in the whole thing and I, I have to learn that um you know that I gotta adjust to it too. So I, I am I'm learning to adjust to it. I think I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> and and seeing on Instagram, yeah, I mean you guys look like you guys are having a good time too, you know, as a a coach and fighter. We we kinda eat together. We don't um we don't engage in too much stuff together. I think there needs to be a fine line of a, a coach and a good friend and you know mm. He can't feel too comfortable with me as a coach. Mm -hmm. So there are things we do. We eat together, but there are other things that, you know, we do keep separate. We don't spend all the time together. So it, it is a, it is a controlled, you know, it has to be a controlled relationship. You can't be his best friend and his coach father figure at the same time, you know? Mm. So it is a little bit of a, you know, a, a work in progress. Mm. <laughs> Oh, that's a good point because then it, maybe he might get too comfortable and then in in terms of you know sparring or or training maybe he'll get slack he'll slack off a little bit or he'll he'll have a different mentality yeah. his edge that might not be there yeah that's a good point huh. so for um uh briefly before i, I want to wrap things up um i kind of want to talk about how you got into Destiny Forever and, and the beginning of it and how um, that all came about because these are some awesome bracelets. I wear these going out and it's it's very nice. It's very Great very lot. sturdy. They're buying on too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, in Japan, these uh, bracelets are, are actually thought of as protection. Mm. So whenever you're, uh, if you're wearing a bracelet and then you, it breaks. It's taking something that was supposed to come to you, you know, some bad fortune that's supposed to come to you. It's taking it for you and broke. Oh, okay. And you know, I'm not that superstitious, but it was like kind of like, oh, that's cool, you know. Mm. Whether it's true or not, that's cool. I love, I love the bracelet. The bracelet itself is just cool to have on. Mm -hmm. And if it has that other meaning, like, oh, why not? So, I had a guy give me as a gift one of them, mm -hmm. and the. When it when it first time it broke, it was in a car accident. I totaled my Mercedes Benz, and uh, my my bracelet. You know, I didn't even know my bracelet broke. I got a fat lip from the airbag. I had an airbag from the door and an airbag from the steering wheel. Oh, shoot out into my face, and then I, the car was totaled. We couldn't find the left front wheel. It flew oh, wow. somewhere into a wall. I was on the highway and my 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 tires started hydrofoiling. Wow! And it finally grabbed it, shot me right into a wall. Mm. And I I walked away from it. Uh, the next day after they towed my car, I noticed that I'm missing my bracelet. Mm. So I called the towing company. They found the bracelet underneath this the gas pedal, but it broke. You know, so when I when that happened, I was like, holy shit! I didn't even get hurt. I got a fat lip, but my bracelet broke. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, oh my God. So, ever since then, I always wanted to have one on. And, mm. you know, as I felt it was protecting me, I wanted, whenever I had, on my 39th birthday party, I decided that instead of getting presents from my guests, I'm going to give them presents. Mm. So, of course, the people that I invited to my birthday party was people that I really considered important people in my life. So, I decided to buy them bracelets on every birthday party. Mm. And what happened was, is one one party that I had, I 
couldn't get in touch with the guy because he was run from the police. So he, he actually offered to teach me how to make them. Mm-hmm. You know, so we met up, he taught me how to make them and took me like three hours to make one. So I was like, okay, I guess no one's getting braces this year, but I, I, it became a hobby. I, I enjoyed making it. I, I'm not the one that likes to do little things with my hands, but for some reason, making these bracelets, I really got attached to it. Mm-hmm. And I kept just making it. I just kept making for myself to a point where I posted on Facebook. Mm. You know, some people on Facebook said they wanted to get some, and I was like, oh, I don't know if I can sell this. This is like a <laughs> hobby. Uh, uh-huh. And as they, they started asking for different colors of bracelets, I started looking at the stones. And one of the shop owners finally told me, hey, you know that, you don't re- we don't refer to these, color, these stones by color. They all have its own name. Mm. And he said, there's a, you know, there's powers to the stone. I'm like, what? And that's how I learned that there's power stones in it. Mm. And, and I just started making it to a point where I felt confident on, you know, putting a price on it. And once I put a price on it, I started selling and I had to make a homepage and mm. <laughs> finally started to open up in Hawaii and you got a big webpage at destinyforever.com. So mm. it just took off. It was good because none of these things I planned, I didn't plan to do it. I didn't plan to make a career as a fighter. It just happened. Mm-hmm. I didn't plan to have a jewelry business, but it happened. Mm-hmm. I didn't plan to live in Japan, but it happened, you know? So my whole life is, just, my whole story is like that. I, I, I get, I'm a lucky guy, man. Mm-hmm. My life is guided into the right areas, the right direction. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't really have to like, I want to be a pro fighter. I want to make my life as a, I did, didn't even think that once. Mm. It just happened. Mm. You know, so I'm, I'm lucky in that sense. Yeah, a lot of things happen organically. And um, yeah, I mean, for, for people that want to look this up, is that destinyforever.com, right? Is it Destiny Forever LLC or is it just destinyforever.com? Destinyforever.com. And they're very well made. I mean, these are very sturdy for people that want to know how it feels i'm telling you right now it's sturdy it's comfortable if you have a good size i mean this is the perfect size for me so it's super strong too yeah people i have customers that just surf with it mm. like i i go in the water with mine every day in the ocean you know so it's it's, it's almost something that you really don't need to ever take off mm-hmm. <laughs> you can actually shower with it you can swim with it you can you know sleep with it i i leave mine on all the time mm. Well, one thing I'm very thankful that um, you you went away with that car car accident. I mean, that's brutal, man. That car accident unscathed. I mean, with just a fat lip. That's, I mean, something like that. That sounds devastating, you know. So yeah, I mean, you know, you know how you know how strong a Mercedes Benz is. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's, I totaled it. I totaled the whole car. That's insane. Oh my god. You know, you're in kind of crazy. Holy shit, man. That's that's crazy. <laughs> Um, Ensign, just kind of wrapping things up a bit. I want to ask you for for fighters, like what what's your advice? Well, I would say what's your top three advice for fighters these days? Because um, maybe guys might be looking at it in a different sense. Maybe they're getting into the sport, or maybe they're veterans. But what would you say something that you've learned in your life, and what would be the top three advice you would you would want to give them? Or a fighter is um, get a lot of mat time. One, a lot of time on the mat is super important. 
the second thing is I would I would um it would be it's good to um when you shop for a gym find a gym that's more family orientated than anything else mm. because when you have the family atmosphere you avoid a lot of drama in the gym with, with jealousy and you know you know fighters being you know competitive with you mm. you know I've my gym is run like a family um I just brought uh, I just came back from Extreme Couture in Vegas mm. they we were lucky enough to have them accept us with open arms mm. and that that gym is like a family they take care of each other they mourn when 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 somebody passes you know it's like a it's like a real nice family atmosphere in the gym so I think the second advice is to really um find a gym that is like a family atmosphere more than a a, a training gym you know mm -hmm. and then the third advice that I I can give you advice for as a something that I've experienced is Whenever you guys get injured, I know, you know, when you're young and you get injured, the doctor tells you the rest of the month. And, you know, for me, I was like, okay, if an old lady walked in with the same problem, he'd tell us the same thing, you know. So for a month for her, ain't a month for me. So I'm going to mm -hmm. go back in the gym in two weeks. Mm -hmm. You know, so, I, and, 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 and you probably could do that being younger. You know, when you're younger, you have a lot faster recovery. But I believe now that a lot of my, my, problems that I have with my shoulders not being able to move, my, my neck being super tight, I can't really look back and forth, my knees pop when I burn, bend to a certain level, it's because I didn't take care of my body when I should have. Mm. So my third recommendation to fighters that's coming up is to heal properly. The doctor says one month, rest the month. Mm. If you have a cast on, don't cut it. I cut off three different casts because I wanted to work out already. Holy shit. I sawed it off. Yeah, it's super hard to saw those. So, you know, don't saw off any casts. Um, doctor says, rest, rest. You know, another week or another two weeks is going to be more helpful to your body and let it to let it heal properly. Mm. Yeah, so that would be my, my three stages of advice. Mm. And then uh, a last question. What, what would you say... For advice for um you know for people you know in, in like our listeners today even just in, just in life in general something you've learned throughout your life what is something that you you would want to give um just advice in general advice in general for everyone is um, no matter what you're experiencing in your life always remember there's someone there in the in life that's experienced something that's worse than you and someone that's experiencing something better. So no matter what situation you're in, remember there could be, it could be worse and it could be better. You know, mm -hmm. so no matter what your situation is in, and if you're feeling down about your situation, just remember that there's always someone out there that got it worse than you. Mm. You know, so, you know, as far as, you know, being in, depressed about your situation, you know, you're not, it could give you, it could be worse. Just remember it could be worse. I, I'm that, I, I feel it really helped me a lot is knowing that, hey, wait a minute, this is a shitty situation, but it could be worse. Mm -hmm. And be grateful that it's not, you mm -hmm. know? So that helped me a lot. And that, I think, whether people understand it or not right away, I think it's good to input it into someone's head that possibly they can start having that type of frame of mind when problems happen. Mm -hmm. That's a great advice, actually, yeah. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, just, um, just I wanna say, hey, 
Uncle Ensign, thank you for coming on the show. I can't thank you enough for for this opportunity to to hey, talk. To grab you. your drink, Kampai Sugai. You forgot to Kampai. Well, we're we're about to Kampai actually. I, oh, I, are we? Oh, I thought we forgot. About no, we, okay, we didn't Kampai yet. I have my I have tea actually, but I I, but now it's cold, so I have cold tea now. But, I have um, warm water. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you guys are watching at home, if you guys want to Kampai with us, um. Yeah, that's that's compai. But uh, so for Uncle Ensign, this is for you. This is to um, your future. As right now, it's it's bright because you're you're super active. You're doing a lot of things, and with your business, this is to your business. This is to you as a coach, to um, even Siyoshi, to to him as a fighter for his his growth and um, to everything you're doing, Ensign. Uh, just thank you again, compai. Thank you, bro. Come by. Come by.